CD3. Somewhere on the chilly ground, a very large bat was trying to get airborne again. It had already been stunned twice, once by a carelessly opened shutter and once by a ballistic garlic sausage, and wasn't feeling very well at all. One more setback, it was thinking, and it's back off to the castle. Besides, it'll be sunrise soon. Its red eyes glinted as it looked up at Magret's open window. It tensed. A paw landed on it. The bat looked around. Grebo had not had a very good night. He had investigated the whole place with regard to female cats and found none. He had prowled among the middens and drawn a blank. People in this town didn't throw garbage away. They ate it. He'd trotted into the woods and found some wolves and had sat and grinned at them until they got uncomfortable and went away. Yes, it had been a very uneventful night. Until now. The bat squirmed under his claw. It seemed to Grebo's small cat brain that it was trying to change its shape, and he wasn't having any of that from a mouse with wings on. Especially now, when he had someone to play with. Genua was a fairy tale city. People smiled and were joyful the live long day, especially if they wanted to see another live long day. Lilith made certain of that. Of course, people had probably thought they were happy in the days before she'd seen to it that the Duke replaced the old Baron, but it was a random, untidy happiness, which was why it was so easy for her to move in. But it wasn't a way of life. There was no pattern to it. One day they'd thank her. Of course, there were always a few difficult ones. Sometimes people just don't know how to act. You did your best for them, you ruled their city properly, you ensured that their lives were worthwhile and full of happiness every hour of the day, and then for no reason at all they turned on you. Guards lined the audience chamber, and there was an audience. Technically, of course, it was the ruler who gave the audience, but Lilith liked to see people watching. One pennyworth of example was worth a pound of punishment. There wasn't a lot of crime in Genua these days, at least not what would be considered crime elsewhere. Things like theft were easily dealt with and hardly required any kind of judicial process. Far more important in Lilith's book were crimes against narrative expectation. People didn't seem to know how they should behave. Lilith held a mirror up to life and chopped all the bits off life that didn't fit. The Duke lounged bonelessly on his throne, one leg dangling over the armrest. He'd never got the hang of chairs. "'And what has this one done?' he said and yawned. Opening his mouth wide was something he was good at, at least. A little old man cowered between two guards. There's always someone willing to be a guard, even in places like Genua. Besides, you've got a really smart uniform with blue trousers and a red coat and a high black hat with a cockade in it. "'But, but, I, I, I can't whistle,' quavered the old man. "'I, I, I didn't know it was compulsory.' "'But you are a toy-maker,' said the Duke. "'Toy-makers whistle and sing the whole day long.' He glanced at Lilith. She nodded. "'I, I, I, I don't know any songs,' said the toy-maker. "'I never got taught songs. "'Just how to make toys. "'I was apprenticed at making toys. Seven years before the little hammer, man and boy.' "'It says here,' said the Duke, making a creditable impersonation of someone reading the charge sheet in front of him, that you don't tell the children stories. Uh, no one ever told me about 
uh, telling stories, said the toy maker. Look, I, I, I just make toys. Toys. That's all I'm good at, toys. I, I, I make good toys. I'm, I'm, I'm just a, a toy maker. You can't be a good toy maker if you don't tell stories to the children, said Lilith, leaning forward. The toy maker looked up at the veiled face. Don't know any, he said. You don't know any? I could tell them how to make toys, the old man quavered. Lilith sat back. It was impossible to see her expression under the veil. I think it would be a good idea if the people's guards here took you away, she said, to a place where you will certainly learn to sing, and possibly after a while you might even whistle. Won't that be nice? The old baron's dungeons had been disgusting. Lilith had had them repainted and refurnished, with a lot of mirrors. When the audience was over, one member of the crowd slipped out through the palace kitchens. The guards on the side gate didn't try to stop her. She was a very important person in the small compass of their lives. Hello, Mrs. Pleasant. She stopped, reached into her basket, and produced a couple of roast chicken legs. Just trying a new peanut coating, she said. Would value your opinion, boys. They took them gratefully. Everyone liked to see Mrs. Pleasant. She could do things with a chicken that would almost make it glad it had been killed. And now I'm just going out to get some herbs, she said. They watched her as she went like a fat, determined arrow in the direction of the marketplace, which was right on the edge of the river. Then they ate the chicken legs. Mrs. Pleasant bustled along the market stalls, and she took great care to bustle. Even in Genua, there were always people ready to tell a tale, especially in Genua. She was a cook, so she bustled, and made sure she stayed fat and was fortunately naturally jolly. She made sure she had flowery arms at all times. If she felt under suspicion, she'd say things like, Lorks! She seemed to be getting away with it so far. She looked for the sign, and there it was. Perched up on the roof pole of a stall that was otherwise stacked with cages of hens, gazoots, wheelie cranes, and other fowl, was a black cockerel. The voodoo doctor was in. Even as her eye found it, the cockerel's head turned to look at her. Set a little way back from the rest of the stalls was a small tent, similar to many around the market. A cauldron bubbled in front of it on a charcoal fire. There were bowls beside it and a ladle, and beside them a plate with coins on it. There were quite a lot of coins. People paid for Mrs. Goggle's cooking, whatever they thought it was worth, and the plate was hardly big enough. The thick liquid in the cauldron was an unappetizing brown. Mrs. Pleasant helped herself to a bowlful and waited. Mrs. Goggle had certain talents. After a while, a voice from the tent said, What's new, Mrs. Pleasant? She shut up the toy maker, said Mrs. Pleasant, to the air in general. And yesterday, it was old Devereux, the innkeeper, for not being fat and not having a big red face. That's four times this month. You come in, Mrs. Pleasant. It was dark and hot inside the tent. There was another fire in there, and another pot. Mrs. Goggle was hunched over it, stirring. She motioned the cook to a pair of bellows. "'Blow up the coals a tad, and we'll see what's what,' she said. Mrs. Pleasant obeyed. She didn't use magic herself, other than that necessary to get a roux to turn, or bread to rise, but she respected it in others, especially in the likes of Mrs. Goggle. The charcoal blazed white, 
The thick liquid in the pot began to churn. Mrs. Goggle peered into the steam. "'What are you doing, Mrs. Goggle?' said the cook anxiously. "'Trying to see what's going to happen,' said the voodoo woman. The voice dropped into the rolling growl of the psychically gifted. Mrs. Pleasant squinted into the roiling mass. "'Someone's going to be eating shrimp?' she said helpfully. "'You see that bit of okra?' said Mrs. Goggle. "'You see the way the crab legs keep coming up just there?' "'You never were one to stint the crab meat,' said Mrs. Pleasant. "'See the way the bubbles is so thick by the oku leaves? "'See the way it all spirals around that purple onion?' "'I see it, I see it,' said Mrs. Pleasant. "'And you know what that means?' "'Means it's going to taste real fine.' "'Sure,' said Mrs. Goggle kindly. "'And it means some people's coming.' Wow! How many? Mrs. Goggle dipped a spoon into the seething mass and tasted it. Three people, she said. She smacked her lips thoughtfully. Women! She dipped the spoon again. Have a taste, she said. There's a cat, too. You can tell by the sassafras. She smacked her lips. Grey. One eye. She explored the cavity of a tooth with her tongue. The left one. Mrs. Pleasant's jaw dropped. They'll find you before they find me, said Mrs. Goggle. You lead them here. Mrs. Pleasant stared at Mrs. Goggle's grim smile and then back down at the mixture in the pot. They're coming all this way for a taste, she said. Sure, Mrs. Goggle sat back. You mean to see the girl in the White House? Mrs. Pleasant nodded. Young embers, she said. Yeah, when I can, when the sisters are out at the palace... They got her real scared, Mrs. Goggle. She looks down at the pot again and back up to Mrs. Goggle. Can you really see? I expect you've got things to marinate, said Mrs. Goggle. Yeah, yeah. Mrs. Pleasant backed out, but with reluctance. Then she halted. Mrs. Pleasant, at rest, was not easily moved again until she wanted to be. That Lilith woman says she can see the whole world in mirrors she said in slightly accusing tones. Mrs. Goggle shook her head. All anyone gets in a mirror is themselves, she said, but what you get in a good gumbo is everything. Mrs. Pleasant nodded. This was a well-known fact. She couldn't dispute it. Mrs. Goggle shook her head sadly when the cook had gone. A voodoo woman was reduced to all sorts of stratagems in order to appear knowing, but she felt slightly ashamed of letting an honest woman believe that she could see the future in a pot of gumbo because all you could see in a pot of Mrs. Goggle's gumbo was that the future certainly contained a very good meal. She'd really seen it in a bowl of jambalaya she'd prepared earlier. Magrat lay with the wand under her pillow. She wobbled gently between sleep and wakefulness. Certainly she was the best person for the wand. There was no doubt about that. Sometimes, and she hardly dared give the thought headroom when she was under the same roof as Granny Weatherwax, she really wondered about the other's commitment to witchcraft. Half the time, they didn't seem to bother. Take medicine for an example. Magrat knew she was much better than them at herbs. She'd inherited several large books on the subject from Goody Wemper, her predecessor in the cottage, and had essayed a few tentative notes of her own as well. She could tell people things about the uses of devil's bit scabious that would interest them so much they'd rush off, presumably, to look for someone else to tell. 
She could fractionally distill and double distill and do things that meant sitting up all night watching the colour of the flame under the retort. She worked at it. Whereas Nanny just tended to put a hot poultice on everything and recommend a large glass of whatever the patient liked best on the basis that since you were going to be ill anyway, you might as well get some enjoyment out of it. Magrat forbade her patient's alcohol because of what it did to the liver. If they didn't know what it did to the liver, she spent some time telling them. And Granny, she just gave people a bottle of coloured water and told them they felt a lot better. And what was so annoying was that they often did. Where was the witchcraft in that? With a wand, though, things could be different. You could help people a lot with a wand. Magic was there to make life better. Magrat knew this in the pink fluttering boudoir of her heart. She dipped under the surface of sleep again. And there was an odd dream. She never mentioned it to anyone afterwards because, well, you didn't, not things like that. But she thought she'd got up in the night, awakened by the silence, to get some more air. And as she passed the mirror, she saw a movement in it. It wasn't her face. It looked a lot like Granny Weatherwax. It smiled at her, a much nicer and friendlier smile than she'd ever got from Granny, Magrat recalled, and then vanished, the cloudy silver surface closing over it. She hurried back to bed and awoke to the sound of a brass band engaged in unrelenting oompa. People were shouting and laughing. Magret got dressed quickly, went out into the corridor, and knocked on the door of the old witches. There was no reply. She tried the handle. After she'd rattled it a couple of times, there was a thump, as the chair wedged under the handle on the other side, the better to deter ravishers, burglars, and other nocturnal intruders, fell over. Granny Weatherwax's boots protruded from under the covers at one end of the bed. Nanny Og's bare feet, Nanny being something of a nighttime revolver, were beside them. Faint snores rattled the jug on the washbasin. These were no longer the full-nosed roars of a quick forty-winks catnapper, but the well-paced growls of someone who intends to make a night of it. Magrat knocked on the sole of Granny's boot. Hey, wake up, something's going on. Granny Weatherwax waking up was quite an impressive sight, and one not seen by many people. Most people on waking up accelerate through a quick, panicky, pre-conscious check-up. Who am I? Where am I? Who is he? She? Good God, why am I cuddling a policeman's helmet? What happened last night? And this is because people are riddled by doubt. It is the engine that drives them through their lives. It is the elastic band in the little model aeroplane of their soul. And they spend their time winding it up until it knots. Early morning is the worst time. There's that little moment of panic in case you have drifted away in the night and something else has moved in. This never happened to Granny Weatherwax. She went straight from fast asleep to instant operation on all six cylinders. She never needed to find herself because she always knew who was doing the looking. She sniffed. Something's burning, she said. They've got a bonfire too, said Magrat. Granny sniffed again. They're roasting garlic, she said. I know. I can't imagine why. They're ripping all the shutters off the windows and burning them in the square and dancing around the fire. Granny Weatherwax gave Nanny Og a vicious jab with her elbow. Wake up, you. <laughs> I didn't get a wink of sleep all night, said Granny reproachfully. What with her snoring? Nanny Og raised the covers cautiously. It's far too early in the morning for it to be early in the morning, she said. Come on, said Granny, we need your skill with languages. 
The owner of the inn flapped his arms up and down and ran around in circles. Then he pointed at the castle that towered over the forest. Then he sucked vigorously at his wrist. Then he fell over on his back. And then he looked expectantly at Nanny Og, while behind him the bonfire of garlic and wooden stakes and heavy window shutters burned merrily. No, said Nanny after a while. Still non comprendi, mine hair. The man got up and brushed some dust off his leather breeches. I think he's saying that someone's dead, said Magrat. Someone in the castle. Well, I must say everyone seems very cheerful about it, said Granny Weatherwax, severely. In the sunlight of the new day, the village looked far more cheerful. Everyone kept nodding happily at the witches. That's because it was probably the landlord, said Nanny Og. Bit of a bloodsucker, I think he's saying. Ah, that'll be it then. Granny rubbed her hands together and looked approvingly at the breakfast table, which had been dragged out into the sunshine. Anyway, the food has certainly improved. Pass the bread, Magrat. Everyone keeps smiling and waving at us, said Magrat. And look at all this food. That's only to be expected, said Granny with a mouthful. They've only had us here one night and already they're learning it's lucky to be kind to witches. Now, help me get the lid off this honey. Under the table, Grebo sat and washed himself. Occasionally he burped. Vampires have risen from the dead, the grave and the crypt, but have never managed it from the cat. Dear Jason, and all at number 21, number 34, number 15, number 87 and number 61, but not at number 18 until she gives back the bowl she definitely borrowed, whatever she says. Well, here we are. Call what a lark so far. Don't ask me about pumpkins. Still, no harm done. <laughs> I'm drawing a picture of where we stayed last night. I have put an X on our room where our room is. The weather... What are you doing, Githa? We ready to leave? Nanny Og looked up, her face still creased with the effort of composition. I thought it would be nice to send something to our Jason, you know, to stop him worrying... So I've done a drawing of this place on a piece of card, and mine hair here will give it to someone going our way. You never know, it might get there. Continues fine. Nanny Og sucked the end of her pencil. Not for the first time in the history of the universe, someone for whom communication normally came as effortlessly as a dream was stuck for inspiration when faced with a few lines on the back of a card. Well, that about wraps it up for now. We'll... Write, crossed out, write again soon, mum. P.S. The cat is looking very peaky. I think he misses his home. Will you come on, Githa? Magret's getting my broom started for me. P.P.S. Granny sends her love. Nanny Og sat back, content in the knowledge of a job well done. Nanny Og sent a number of cards home to her family, not a single one of which got back before she did. This is traditional, and happens everywhere in the universe. Magrat reached the end of the town square and stopped to rest. Quite an audience had gathered to see a woman with legs. They were very polite about it. Somehow that made it worse. It, it doesn't fly unless you run really fast, she explained, aware even as she spoke how stupid this sounded, especially if you were listening in a foreign language. Uh, I think it's called hump-starting. She took a deep breath, scowled in concentration, and ran forward again. This time it started. It jolted in her hands. The bristles rustled. She managed to slip it into neutral before it could drag her along the ground. 
One thing about Granny Weatherwax's broomstick, it was one of the very old-fashioned ones built in the days when broomsticks were built to last and not fall apart with woodworm after ten years, was that while it might take some starting, when it went, it didn't hang about. Magrat had once considered explaining the symbolism of the witch's broomstick to Granny Weatherwax and decided not to. It would have been worse than the row about the significance of the maypole. Departure took some time. The villagers insisted on giving them little gifts of food. Nanny Og made a speech which no one understood, but which was generally cheered. Grebo, hiccuping occasionally, oozed into his accustomed place among the bristles of Nanny's broomstick. As they rose above the forest, a thin plume of smoke also rose from the castle. And then there were flames. "'I see people dancing in front of it,' said Magrat. "'Always a dangerous business, renting property,' said Granny Weatherwax. "'I expect he was a bit lax when it came to redecorating and repairing the roof and such like. "'People take against that kind of thing. "'My landlord hasn't done a hand's turn on my cottage the whole time I've been there,' she added. "'It's shameful!' And me an old woman, too. I thought you owned your place, said Magrat, as the broomsticks set off over the forest. She just ain't paid no rent for sixty years, said Nanny Og. Is that my fault? said Granny Weatherwax. It's not my fault. I'd be quite willing to pay, she smiled a slow, self-confident smile. All he has to do is ask, she added. This is the Discworld scene from above its cloud formations circling in long curved patterns. Three dots emerged from the cloud layer. I can see why travelling doesn't catch on. I call this boring. Nothing but forest for hours and hours. Yes, but flying gets you to places quickly, Granny. How long have we been flying anyway? About ten minutes since you last asked, Esme. You see? Boring. It's sitting on the sticks I don't like. I reckon there ought to be a, a special broomstick for going long distances, right? One you could stretch out on and have a snooze. They all considered this. And have your meals on, added Nanny. Proper meals, I mean, with gravy. Not just sandwiches and stuff. An experiment in aerial cookery on a small oil burner had been hastily curtailed after it threatened to set fire to Nanny's broomstick. I suppose you could do it if you had a, a really big broomstick, said Magrat, about the size of a, of a tree, perhaps. Then one of us could do the steering and another one could do the cooking. It'd never happen, said Nanny Og, the reason being the dwarfs would make you pay a fortune for a stick that big. Yes, but what you could do, said Magrat, warming to her subject, is get people to pay you to give them rides. There must be lots of people fed up with highwaymen and, and being seasick and, and that sort of thing. How about it, Esme? said Nanny Og. I'll do the steering and Magrat'll do the cooking. Mm, what shall I do then? said Granny Weatherwax suspiciously. Oh, well, there ought to be someone to, you know, welcome people onto the stick and, and give them their meals, said Magrat, and tell them what to do if the magic fails, for example. If the magic fails, everyone will crash to the ground and die, Granny pointed out. Yes, but someone will have to tell them how to do that, said Nanny Og, winking at Magrat. They won't know how to, not being experienced in flying. And we could call ourselves, she paused. 
As always on the Discworld, which was right on the very edge of unreality, little bits of realness crept in whenever someone's mind was resonating properly. This happened now. Three witches airborne, she said. How about that? Broomsticks airborne, said Magrat, or Pan Air. There's no need to bring religion into it, sniffed Granny. Nanny Og looked slyly from Granny to Magrat. We could call it Virgin, she began. A gust of wind caught all three sticks and whirled them up. There was a brief panic as the witches brought them under control. Load of nonsense, muttered Granny. Well, it passes the time, said Nanny Og. Granny looked morosely at the greenery below. You'd never get people to do it, she said. Load of nonsense. Dear Jason on Famiel, Overleaf on the other side, please find enclosed a sketch of somewhere some king died and was buried, search me why. It's in some village where we stopped last night. We had some stuff, it was chewy, you'll never guess it was snails. And not bad. And Esme had three helpings before she found out and then had a row with the cook. And Magrat was sick all night just at the thought of it and had a dire rear. Thinking of you, your loving mum, P.S. the privies here are disgusting. They have them indoors. So much for hygiene. Several days passed. In a quiet little inn in a tiny country, Granny Weatherwax sat and regarded the food with deep suspicion. The owner hovered with the frantic expression of one who knows, even before he starts, that he's not going to come out of this ahead of the game. Good, simple home cooking, said Granny. That's all I require. You know me, I'm not the demanding sort. No one could say I'm the demanding sort. I just want simple food, not all grease and stuff. It comes to something when you complain about something in your lettuce and it turns out to be what you ordered. Nanny Og tucked her napkin into the top of her dress and said nothing. Like that place last night, said Granny. You'd think you'd be all right with sandwiches, wouldn't you? I mean... Sandwiches? Simplest food there is in the old world. You'd think even foreigners couldn't get sandwiches wrong. <laughs> they didn't call them sandwiches, Granny, said Magrat, her eyes dwelling on the owner's frying pan. They called them, er, uh, I think they called them Smorgie's Board. Oh, they, they was nice, said Nanny Og. I'm very partial to a pickle derring. But they must think we're daft, not noticing they'd left off the top slice said Granny triumphantly. Well, I told them a thing or two. Another time they'll think twice before trying to swindle people out of a slice of bread that's theirs by rights. I expect they will, said Magrat darkly. And I don't hold with all this giving things funny names so people don't know what they're eating, said Granny, determined to explore the drawbacks of international cookery to the full. I like stuff that tells you plain what it is, like, well, bubble and squeak, or... Spotted Dick, said Nanny absently. She was watching the progress of the pancakes with some anticipation. That's right. Decent, honest food. I mean, take that stuff we had for lunch. I'm not saying it wasn't nice, said Granny graciously. In a foreign sort of way, of course. But they called it Quises de Granoli. And who knows what that means? Frog's legs, translated Nanny without thinking. The silence was filled with Granny Weatherwax taking a deep breath and a pale green colour creeping across Magrat's face. 
Nanny Og now thought quicker than she had done for a very long time. Er, uh, not actual frog's legs, she said hurriedly. It's like Toad in the Hall is really only sausage and batter pudding. It, it is just a joke name. It doesn't sound very funny to me, said Granny. She turned to glare at the pancakes. At least they can't muck up a decent pancake, she said. What do they call them here? Er, uh, Crap Suzette, I think, said Nanny. Granny forbore to comment, but she watched with grim satisfaction as the owner finished the dish and gave her a hopeful smile. Ah, now he expects us to eat them, she said. He only goes and sets fire to them, and then he still expects us to eat them. It might later have been possible to chart the progress of the witches across the continent by some sort of demographic survey. Long afterwards, in some quiet, onion-hung kitchens, in sleepy villages nestling among hot hills, you might have found cooks who wouldn't twitch and try to hide behind the door when the stranger came into the kitchen. Dear Jason, it is definitely more warmer here. Margaret says it is because we are getting further from the hub. And a funny thing, all the money is different. You have to change it for other money, which is all different shapes, and is not proper money at all, in my opinion. We generally let Esme sort that out. She gets a very good rate of exchange. It is amazing. Margaret says she will write a book called Travelling on One Dollar a Day, and it's always the same dollar. Esme is getting to act just like a foreigner. Yesterday, she took her shawl off. Next thing, it will be dancing on tables. This is a picture of some famous bridge or other. Lots of love, Mum. The sun beat down on the cobbled street, and particularly on the courtyard of a little inn. It's hard to imagine, said Magrat, that it's autumn back home. Er, uh, Garcon? Mucho vino avaxi, gracias. The innkeeper, who did not understand one word and was a good-natured man who certainly did not deserve to be called a garcon, smiled at Nanny. He'd smile at anyone with such an unlimited capacity for drink. "'I don't hold with putting all these tables out in the street, though,' said Granny Weatherwax, although without much severity. It was pleasantly warm. It wasn't that she didn't like autumn. It was a season she always looked forward to, but at her time of life it was nice to know that it was happening hundreds of miles away while she wasn't there.' Underneath the table, Grebo dozed on his back with his legs in the air. Occasionally he twitched as he fought wolves in his sleep. "'It says in Desiderata's notes,' said Magrat, turning the stiff pages carefully, "'that in the late summer here they have this special traditional ceremony "'where they let a lot of bulls run through the street.' "'That'd be something worth seeing,' said Granny Weatherwax. "'Why do they do it?' "'So all the young men can chase them to show how brave they are.' said Magrat. Apparently they pull their rosettes off. A variety of expressions passed across Nanny Og's wrinkled face, like weather over a stretch of volcanic badlands. Sounds a bit strange, she said at last. What do they do that for? She doesn't explain it very clearly, said Magrat. She turned another page. Her lips moved as she read on. What does uh, Kajonas mean? They shrugged. "'Here, you want to slow down on that drink?' said Granny, as a way to put down another bottle in front of Nanny Og. "'I wouldn't trust any drink that's green.' "'It's not like proper drink,' said Nanny. "'It says on the label it's made from herbs. "'You can't make a serious drink out of just herbs.' 
Try a drop. Granny sniffed the open bottle. Smells like aniseed, she said. It says absinthe on the bottle, said Nanny. Oh, that's just a name for wormwood, said Magrat, who was good at herbs. My herbal says it's good for stomach disorders and prevents sickness after meals. There you are, then, said Nanny. Herbs is practically medicine. She poured a generous measure for the other two. Give it a go, Magrat. It'll put a chest on your chest. Granny Weatherwax surreptitiously loosened her boots. She was also debating whether to remove her vest. She probably didn't need all three. We ought to be getting on, she said. Oh, I'm fed up with the broomsticks, said Nanny. More than a couple of hours on a stick and I've gone rigid in the dairy air. She looked expectantly at the other two. That foreign for bum, she said. Although it's a funny thing, in some foreign parts, bum means tramp, and tramp means hobo. Funny things, words. Now laugh a minute, said Granny. The river's quite wide here, said Magrat. There's big boats. I've never been on a proper boat. You know, the kind that doesn't sink easily. Broomsticks is more witchy, said Granny, but not with much conviction. She did not have Nanny Ogg's international anatomical vocabulary, but bits of her she wouldn't even admit to knowing the names of were definitely complaining. "'I saw them boats,' said Nanny. "'They look like great big rafts with houses on. "'You wouldn't hardly know you're on a boat, Esme. "'Here, what's he doing?' The innkeeper had hurried out and was taking the jolly little tables back inside. He nodded at Nanny and spoke with a certain amount of urgency. "'I think he wants us to go inside.' said Magrat. I likes it out here, said Granny. I likes it out here, thank you, she repeated. Granny Weatherwax's approach to foreign tongues was to repeat herself loudly and slowly. Here, you stop trying to take our table away, snapped Nanny, thumping his hands. The innkeeper spoke hurriedly and pointed up the street. Granny and Magrat glanced inquiringly at Nanny Og. She shrugged. Uh, didn't understand any of that, she admitted. "'We're stopping here, we are, thank you,' said Granny. The innkeeper's eyes met hers. He gave in, waved his hands in the air in exasperation, and went inside. "'They think they can take advantage of you when you're a woman,' said Magrat. She stifled a burp discreetly and picked up the green bottle again. Her stomach was feeling a lot better already. "'That's very true. Do you know what?' said Nanny Og. "'I barricaded myself in my room last night, and a man... Didn't even try to break in. Githa Og, sometimes you... Granny stopped as she caught sight of something over Nanny's shoulder. There's a load of cows coming down the street, she said. Nanny turned her chair around. Oh, must be that bull thing Magrat mentioned, she said. Should be worth seeing. Magrat glanced up. All along the street, people were craning out of every second-story window. A jostle of horns and hooves and steaming bodies was approaching rapidly. "'There's people up there laughing at us,' she said accusingly. Under the table, Grebo stirred and rolled over. He opened his good eye, focused on the approaching bulls, and sat up. This looked like being fun. "'Laughing?' said Granny. She looked up. The people aloft did indeed appear to be enjoying a joke. Her eyes narrowed. We're just going to carry on as if nothing is happening, she declared. But they're quite big bulls, said Magrat nervously. They're nothing to do with us, 
said Granny. It's nothing to do with us if a lot of foreigners want to get excited about things. Now, pass me the, uh, the herbal wine. As far as La Grote Cabona innkeeper could remember the events of that day, they seemed to happen like this. It was the time of the thing with the bulls, and the mad women just sat there drinking absinthe as if it was water. He tried to get them to come indoors, but the old one, the skinny one, just shouted at him. So he let them bide, but left the door open. People soon got the message when the bulls came down the street with the young men of the village after them. Whoever snatched the big red rosette from between the horns of the biggest bull got the seat of honour at that night's feast. Plus, Lagro smiled a smile of forty years' remembrance, a certain informal but highly enjoyable relationship with the young women of the town for quite some time after. And the mad women just sat there. The leading bull had been a bit uncertain about this. Its normal course of action would be to roar and paw the ground a bit to get the targets running in an interesting way, and its mind wasn't able to cope with this lack of attention. But that hadn't been its major problem, because its major problem had been twenty other bulls right behind it. And even that ceased to be its major problem, because the terrible old woman, the one all in black, had stood up, muttered something at it, and smacked it between the eyes. Then the horrible dumpy one, whose stomach had the resilience and capacity of a galvanised water tank, fell backwards off her chair, laughing, and the young one, that is, the one who was younger than the other two, started flapping at the bulls as if they were ducks. And then the street was full of angry, bewildered bulls, and a lot of shouting, terrified young men. It's one thing to chase a lot of panicking bulls, and quite another to find that they are suddenly trying to run the other way. The innkeeper, from the safety of his bedroom window, could hear the horrible women shouting things to one another. The dumpy one kept laughing and shouting some sort of battle cry. Try the horseman's sore desme. And then the younger one, who was pushing her way through the animals as if being gored to death was something that only happened to other people, found the lead bull and took the rosette off it with the same air of concern as an old woman may take a thorn out of her cat's paw. She held it as if she didn't know what it was or what she should do with it. The sudden silence affected even the bulls. Their tiny little bloodshot brains sensed something was wrong. The bulls were embarrassed. Fortunately, the horrible women left on a riverboat that afternoon, after one of them rescued her cat, which had cornered twenty-five stone of confused bull and was trying to toss it in the air and play with it. That evening, La Grote Cabona made a point of being very, very kind to his old mother. And the village held a flower festival next year, and no one ever talked about the thing with the bulls ever, ever again. At least, not in front of the men. The big paddle-wheel sloshed through the thick brown soup of the river. The motive power was several dozen trolls under a sunshade, trudging along an endless belt. Birds sang in the trees on the distant banks. The scent of hibiscus wafted across the water almost, but unfortunately not quite overpowering the scent of the river itself. Now this, said Nanny Og, is more like it. She stretched out on the deck chair and turned to look at Granny Weatherwax, whose brows were knitted in the intense concentration of reading. Nanny's mouth spread in an evil grin. You know what this river's called, she said. Now. It's called the Vukes River. Yes? Know what that means? No. The old masculine river, 
said Nanny. Yes? Words have sex in foreign parts, said Nanny, hopefully. Granny didn't budge. Wouldn't be at all surprised, she murmured. Nanny sagged. That's one of Desiderata's books, isn't it? Yes, said Granny. She licked her thumb decorously and turned the page. Where's McGrath gone? She's having a lie down in the cabin, said Granny without looking up. Tommy upset. Nah, it's her head this time. Now be quiet, Githa, I'm having a read. What about? said Nanny cheerfully. Granny Weatherwax sighed and put her finger on the page to mark her place. This place we're going to, she said. Genua. Desiderata says it's decadent. Nanny Ogg's smile remained fixed. Oh, yes, she said. That's good, is it? I've never been to a city before. Granny Weatherwax paused. She'd been pondering for some while. She wasn't at all certain about the meaning of the word decadent. She dismissed the possibility that it meant having ten teeth in the same sense that Nanny Ogg, for example, was unident. Whatever it meant, it was something Desiderata had felt necessary to write down. Granny Weatherwax did not generally trust books as a means of information, but now she had no choice. She had a vague idea that decadent had something to do with not opening the curtains all day. She says it's also a city of art, wit and culture, said Granny. Oh, we shall be all right there then, said Nanny confidently. Particularly noted for the beauty of its women, she says here. We shall fade right in, no trouble. Granny turned the pages carefully. Desiderata had paid close attention to affairs all over the disc. On the other hand, she hadn't been writing for readers other than herself, so her notes tended to the cryptic and were aid memoir rather than coherent accounts. Granny read, Now L rules the city as the power behint the throne, and Baron S, they say, has been killed, drowned in the river. He was a wicked man, though not, I think, as wicked as L, for she says she wants to make it a magic kingdom, a happy and peaceful place, and when people do that, look out for spies on every corner, and no man dare speak out, for who dare speak out against evil done in the name of happiness and peace? All the streets are clean, and axes are sharp. But E is safe, at least, for now L has plans for her. And Mrs. G, who was the Baron's amour, hides in the swamp and fights back with swamp magic. But you cannot fight mirror magic, which is all reflection. Fairy godmothers came in twos, Granny knew. So that was Desiderata and... and L. But who was this person in the swamp? Githa, said Granny. <sighs> was that? said Nanny Og, who was dozing off. Desiderata says some woman here is someone's armour. Oh, it's probably a metaphor, said Nanny Og. Ow, oh, said Granny darkly. One of them things. But no one can stop Mardi Gras, she read. If anything can be done, it be on Samadhi Nwit Mort, the last night of Carnivale, the night halfway between the living and the dead when magic flows in the streets. If L is vulnerable, it is then, for Carnivale is everything she hates. Granny Weatherwax pulled her hat down over her eyes to shield them from the sun. It says here they have a great big carnival every year, she said. Mardi Gras, it's called. That means fat lunchtime, said Nanny Og, 
international linguist. Garcon, etc. gross mint tulip avec petit bowl de peanuts pour favor. Granny Weatherwax shut the book. She would not, of course, admit it to a third party, least of all another witch, but as Genua drew nearer, Granny was becoming less and less confident. She was waiting in Genua, after all this time, staring at her out of the mirror, smiling. The sun beat down. She tried defying it. Sooner or later, she was going to have to give in, though. It was going to be time to remove another vest. Nanny Og sat and drew cards for her relatives for a while, and then yawned. She was a witch who liked noise and people around her. Nanny Og was getting bored. It was a big boat, more like a floating inn, and she felt certain there was some excitement somewhere. She laid her bag on her seat and wandered away to look for it. The trolls plodded on. The sun was red, fat and low when Granny Weatherwax awoke. She looked around guiltily from the shelter of her hat brim in case anyone had noticed her asleep. Falling asleep during the day was something only old women did, and Granny Weatherwax was an old woman only when it suited her purposes. The only spectator was Grebo, curled up on Nanny's chair. His one good eye was fixed on her, but it wasn't so terrifying as the milky-white stare of his blind one. "'Just uh, considering our strategy,' she muttered, just in case. She closed the book and strode off to their cabin. It wasn't a big one. Some of the staterooms looked huge, but what with the herbal wine and everything, Granny hadn't felt up to using any influence to get one. Magrat and Nanny Og were sitting on a bunk in gloomy silence. "'I feels a bit peckish,' said Granny. "'I smelled stew on the way here, so let's go and have a look, eh? What about that?' The other two continued to stare at the floor. "'I suppose there's always pumpkin,' said Magrat. "'And there's always the dwarf bread.' "'There's always the dwarf bread,' said Nanny automatically. She looked up, her face a mask of shame. "'Er, uh, Esme, um, you know the money?' "'The money what we all gave you to keep in your knickers for safety,' said Granny. Something about the way the conversation was going suggested the first few pebbles slipping before a major landslide. "'That's the, um, uh, money.' I'm referring to. Er, uh, the money in the big leather bag that we were going to be very careful about spending, said Granny. You see, the, um, uh, money... Oh, that money, said Granny, is, uh, gone, said Nanny. Stolen? She's been gambling, said Magrat, in tones of smug horror, with men... It wasn't gambling, snapped Nanny. I never gamble. They were no good at cards. I won no end of games. But you lost money, said Granny. Nanny Og looked down again and muttered something. What? said Granny. I said I won nearly all of them, said Nanny. And then I thought, here, we could really have a bit of money to, you know, spend in the city. And I've always been very good at cripple Mr Onion. So you decided to bet heavily. How did you know that? Got a feeling about it, said Granny wearily. And suddenly, everyone else was lucky. Am I right? It was weird, said Nanny. Hmm. Well, it's not gambling, said Nanny. I didn't see it was gambling. They were no good when I started playing. 
It's not gambling to play against someone who's no good. It's common sense. There was nearly fourteen dollars in that bag, said Magrat, not counting the foreign money. Hmm. Granny Weatherwax sat down on the bunk and drummed her fingers on the woodwork. There was a faraway look in her eyes. The phrase, card sharp, had never reached her side of the ramtops, where people were friendly and direct, and, should they encounter a professional cheat, tended to nail his hand to the table in an easy and outgoing manner, without asking him what he called himself. But human nature was the same everywhere. "'You're not upset, are you, Esme?' said Nanny, anxiously. "'I expect I can soon pick up a new broom when we get home.' "'What?' "'After she lost all her money, she bet her broom,' said Magrat triumphantly. "'Have we got any money at all?' said Granny. "'A trawl of various pockets and liquor legs produced forty-seven pence.' "'Right,' said Granny. "'She scooped it up. "'That ought to be enough, to start with, anyway. "'Where are these men?' "'What are you going to do?' said Magrat. "'I'm going to play cards,' said Granny. "'You can't do that,' said Magrat, "'who had recognised the gleam in Granny's eye. "'You're going to use magic to win. "'You mustn't use magic to win, "'not to affect the laws of chance. "'That's wicked.' The boat was practically a floating town, and in the balmy night air no one bothered much about going indoors. The riverboat's flat deck was dotted with groups of dwarfs, trolls and humans lounging among the cargo. Granny threaded her way between them and headed for the long saloon that ran almost the entire length of the boat. It was the sound of revelry within. The riverboats were the quickest and easiest transport for hundreds of miles. On them you got, as Granny would put it, all sorts and the riverboats going downstream were always crowded with a certain type of opportunist as fat lunchtime approached. She walked into the saloon. An onlooker might have thought it had a magic doorway. Granny Weatherwax, as she walked towards it, strode as she usually strode. As soon as she passed through, though, she was suddenly a bent old woman hobbling along and a sight to touch all but the wickedest heart. She approached the bar and then stopped. Behind it was the biggest mirror Granny had ever seen. She stared fixedly at it, but it seemed safe enough. Well, she'd have to risk it. She hunched her back a little more and addressed the barman. Excusez-moi, young hom, she began. Something about Nanny Og rubbed off on people. The barman gave her a disinterested look and went on polishing a glass. What can I do you for, old crone? he said. There was only the faintest suggestion of a flicker in Granny's expression of elderly imbecility. "'Oh, you can understand me,' she said. "'We gets all sorts on the river,' said the barman. "'Then I was wondering if you could be so kind as to loan me a deck. "'I, I think it's called of uh, cards,' quavered Granny. "'Going to play a game of old maid, are you?' said the barman. There was a chilly flicker across Granny's eyes again, and she said, No, just patience. I'd like to try to get the hang of it. He reached under the counter and tossed a greasy pack towards her. She thanked him effusively and tottered off to a small table in the shadows, where she dealt a few cards randomly on the drink-ringed surface and stared at them. 
It was only a few minutes later that a gentle hand was laid on her shoulder. She looked up into a friendly, open face that anyone would lend money to. A gold tooth glittered as the man spoke. "'Excuse me, good mother,' he said, "'but <laughs> my friends and I,' he gestured to some more welcoming faces at a nearby table, "'would feel much more comfortable in ourselves if you were to join us. "'It can be very dangerous for a woman travelling by herself.' Granny Weatherwax smiled nicely at him, and then waved vaguely at her cards. "'I can never remember whether the ones are worth more or less than the pictures. <laughs> Forget me own head next, I expect.' They all laughed. Granny hobbled to the other table. She took the vacant seat, which put the mirror right behind her shoulder. She smiled to herself and then leaned forward, all eagerness. "'So, tell me,' she said, "'how do you play this game, then?' "'All witches are very conscious of stories. "'They can feel stories, "'in the same way that a bather in a little pool "'can feel the unexpected trout. "'Knowing how stories work is almost all the battle. "'For example, when an obvious innocent sits down "'with three experienced card sharpers and says, "'How do you play this game, then?' Someone is about to be shaken down until their teeth fall out. Magrat and Nanny Og sat side by side on the narrow bunk. Nanny was distractedly tickling Grebo's stomach while he purred. She'll get into terrible trouble if she uses magic to win, said Magrat. And you know how she hates losing, she added. Granny Weatherwax was not a good loser. From her point of view, losing was something that happened to other people. It's her ego said Nanny Og. Everyone's got one of them. An ego. And she's got a great big one. Of course, that's all part of being a witch, having a big ego. She's bound to use magic, said Magrat. It's tempting fate using magic in a game of chance, said Nanny Og. Cheating's all right. That's practically fair. I mean, anyone can cheat. But using magic, oh, it's tempting fate. "'No, not fate,' said Magrat darkly. Nanny Og shivered. "'Come on,' said Magrat. "'We can't let her do it.' "'It's her ego,' said Nanny Og weakly. "'Terrible thing, a big ego.' "'I got,' said Granny, three little pictures of kings and such like, "'and, and three of them funny number one cards.' "'The three men beamed and winked at one another.' "'That's um, triple onion,' said the one who had introduced Granny to the table, and who had turned out to be called Mr. Frank. "'Oh, and, and, and that's good, is it?' "'It means you win yet again, dear lady.' He pushed a pile of pennies towards her. "'Gosh,' said Granny, "'that means I've got, um, ooh, what would it be? Almost five dollars now?' <laughs> "'Can't understand it,' said Mr. Frank.' It must be the famous beginner's luck, eh? Soon be poor men if it goes on like this, said one of his companions. She'll have the coats off our backs right enough, said the third man. <laughs> Think we should give up right now, said Mr. Frank. Hehehehe. <laughs> <laughs> "'Oh, no, I want to go on,' said Granny, grinning anxiously. "'I'm just getting the hang of it.' 
Well, you'd better give us a sporting chance to win a little bit back, <laughs> said Mr. Frank. What about half a dollar a steak? <laughs> oh, I reckon she'll want a dollar a steak, a sporting lady like her, said the third man. <laughs> Granny looked down at her pile of pennies. For a moment she looked uncertain, and then they could see she realised... How much could she lose the way the cards were going? Yes, she said. A dollar a stake, she blushed. This is exciting, isn't it? Yeah, said Mr. Frank. He drew the pack towards him. There was a horrible noise. All three men stared at the bar where shards of mirror were cascading to the floor. What happened? Granny gave him a sweet old smile. She hadn't appeared to look around. I reckon the glass he was polishing must have slipped right out of his hand and smashed right into the mirror, she said. I do hope he doesn't have to pay for it out of his wages, the poor boy. The men exchanged glances. Come on, said Granny, I've got my dollar already. Mr Frank looked nervously at the ravaged frame, and then he shrugged. The movement dislodged something somewhere. There was a muffled snapping noise like a mousetrap carrying out the last rites. Mr Frank went white and gripped his sleeve. A small metal contraption, all springs and twisted metal, fell out. A crumpled up ace of cups was tangled up in it. Whoops, said Granny. Magrat peered through the window into the saloon. What's she doing now? hissed Nanny Og. She's grinning again, said Magrat. Nanny Og shook her head. Ego, she said. Granny Weatherwax had that method of play that has reduced professional gamblers to incoherent rage throughout the multiverse. She held her cards, tightly cupped in her hands, a few inches from her face, allowing the merest fraction of each one to protrude. She glared at them as if daring them to offend her. And she never seemed to take her eyes off them except to watch the dealing. And she took far too long and she never, ever took risks. After twenty-five minutes, she was down one dollar, and Mr Frank was sweating. Granny had already helpfully pointed out three times that he'd accidentally dealt cards off the bottom of the deck, and she'd asked for another pack, because, look, this one's got all little marks on the back. It was her eyes, that's what it was. Twice he'd folded on a perfectly good three-card onion, only to find that she'd been holding a lousy double bagel. Then the third time, thinking he'd worked out her play, he'd called her out and run a decent flush right into the maw of a five-card onion that the old bag must have been patiently constructing for ages. And then his knuckles went white, and then the dreadful, terrible hag had said, Have I won with all these little cards? Gosh, aren't I the lucky one? And then she started humming when she looked at her cards. Normally the three of them would have welcomed this sort of thing, the teeth tappers, the eyebrow raisers, the ear rubbers, they were as good as money in the sock under the mattress, to a man who knew how to read such things. But the appalling old crone was as transparent as a lump of coal, and the humming was insistent. You found yourself trying to follow the tune. It made your teeth tingle. Next thing you were glumly watching while she laid down a measly broken flush in front of your even more measly two-card onion, and said, What? Is it me again? 
Mr. Frank was desperately trying to remember how to play cards without his sleeve device, a handy mirror, and a marked deck, in the teeth of a hum like a fingernail down a blackboard. It wasn't as if the ghastly old creature even knew how to play properly. After an hour, she was four dollars ahead, and when she said, I am a lucky girl, Mr. Frank bit through his tongue. And then he got a natural great onion. There was no realistic way to beat a great onion. It was something that happened to you once or twice in a lifetime. She folded. The old bitch folded. She abandoned one blasted dollar, and she folded. Magrat peered through the window again. What's happening? said Nanny. They all look very angry. Nanny took off her hat and removed her pipe. She lit it and tossed the match overboard. Oh, she'll be humming, you mark my words. She's got a very annoying hum, has Esme. Nanny looked satisfied. Has she started cleaning out her ear yet? Don't think so. No one cleans out her ear like Esme. She was cleaning out her ear. It was done in a very ladylike way, and the daft old baggage probably wasn't even aware she was doing it. She just kept inserting her little finger in her ear and swivelling it around. It made a noise like a small pool cue being chalked. It was displacement activity, that's what it was. They all cracked in the end. She folded again, and it had taken him bloody five bloody minutes to put together a bloody double onion. I remember, said Nanny Og, when she came over our house for the party when King Verence got crowned, and we played Chase My Neighbour Up the Passage with the kiddies for apennies. She accused Jason's youngest of cheating and sulked for a week afterwards. Was he cheating? I expect so, said Nanny proudly. The trouble with Esme is that she don't know how to lose. She's never had much practice. Lobsang Dibbler says sometimes you have to lose in order to win, said Magrat. Sounds daft to me, said Nanny. That's Yen Buddhism, is it? No, they're the ones who say you have to have lots of money to win, said Magrat. The Yen Buddhists are the richest religious sect in the universe. They hold that the accumulation of money is a great evil and burden to the soul. They therefore, regardless of personal hazard, see it as their unpleasant duty to acquire as much as possible in order to reduce the risk to innocent people. In the path of the scorpion, the way to win is to lose every fight except the last one. You use the enemy's strength against himself. What, you get him to it himself, sort of thing, said Nanny. Sounds daft. Magrat glowered. What do you know about it, she said with uncharacteristic sharpness. What? Well, I'm fed up, said Magrat. At least I'm making an effort to learn things. I don't go around just bullying people and acting bad-tempered all the time. Nanny took her pipe out of her mouth. I'm not bad-tempered, she said mildly. I wasn't talking about you. Oh, well, Esme's always been bad-tempered, said Nanny. It comes natural to her. And she hardly ever does real magic. What good is being a witch if you don't do magic? Why doesn't she use it to help people? Nanny peered at her through the pipe smoke. Cause she knows how good she'd be at it, I suppose, she said. Anyway, I've known her a long time, known the whole family. All the weatherwaxes is good at magic, even the men. They've got this magical streak in them. Kind of a curse. Anyway, she thinks you can't help people with magic, not properly. True, too. Then what good... Nanny prodded at the pipe with a match.
End of CD 3